one of the um, subjects that came up a, a few times today, talking with people um, that I realized I'd omitted to make uh, much mention of, or, or any mention of, uh, for which I uh, a little bit of an oversight, which was the subject of pain. <laughs> Completely slipped my mind. <laughs> so, uh, I thought I might talk a little bit about, uh, about that to, uh, to begin with this evening. Um, the... Um, Even though uh, many of us are, are old hands uh, at um, meditation practice, or old sitters, um, yeah, it still uh, can evade us um, what is the, the best way or the most effective, uh, realistic, and um, helpful way to, to negotiate work with physical pain when we meditate. And um, as I, I mentioned um, a few days ago, uh, the, uh, in my, the early years of my uh, monastic life, when I started, first started meditating, then uh, like most of us, I experienced a great deal of, of physical pain. Um, and, and as I was saying to one person today, you know, back in the old days, you know, when men were men, <laughs> it's a very politically incorrect comment to make. <laughs> when beings, were, back in the old days, when beings were beings. <laughs> it's a bit better, isn't it? Yeah. Um, you know, we would uh, we would have uh, we wouldn't have any of the, we wouldn't have any of these poncy <laughs> kapok mats. You know, we just had a thin little thin grass mat, you know, a couple of millimeters thick, on a concrete floor, and uh, no no cushions at all. Cushions are like totally verboten. So we had to sit flat on the floor, and. Uh, you know, I had actually never meditated before I showed up at this place. <laughs> this is the, the deep end practice. <laughs> and the sittings were an hour long. Um, and the policy was that you didn't move. So it was a uh, sort of no prisoners taken, <laughs> no quarter asked, none given kind of policy. Um, and so that was a bit of a a, you know, a rude experience because you know you you, you think uh, well, I'll meditate to learn how to be peaceful, <laughs> and then you, uh, and you think meditation is about doing something with your mind, and you don't realize how much your body is involved in your mind until you just sit on a concrete floor for an hour without moving, and um, then it's uh, very rapidly revealed that the body is a major player in in uh, our world. 
So anyway, I, I had, um, just like all of us, you know, a lot of physical pain to, to deal with. And, um, but also, one of the things that is, is very beautiful about Buddha Dhamma is that even though it's um, a means of training uh, and wisdom teachings that are, say, not afraid to um, meet with life's difficulties and life's sort of... Um, less attractive side. It's also not um, fanatical, or uh, it's also not a, a, a teaching based around the idea of you know, burning up bad karma by experiencing pain. I'm very relieved. To <laughs> I was very glad to hear that. When, in fact, you know, if that had been the case, I would have probably just have checked out of the monastery a few days after I checked in. Because it's not a matter of just um, gritting one's teeth and, and bearing it and feeling like I'm kind of clicking off the bad karma points just by the number of hours I've ex- experienced agony. Um, it's, not, uh, it's neither that easy nor that difficult. So, um, they, uh, uh, the teaching was always uh, clearly, um, uh, uh, say, using... Not seeking pain, but if pain is going to arise, you know, learning how to, to work with it in a skillful way and to learn to, to um, understand it, get beyond it, not to be dominated by it. So the kind of standard that Ajahn Chah set was that as soon as you can't stand it anymore, then don't move for, about, for another few minutes. As soon as your mind is saying, okay, that's it, enough. I can't bear it. Then give it another few minutes, and then if you really need to, you can change your posture. And then once you change your posture, then just re-establish your attention on the, the meditation object. And so, um, in working with, with pain in, in this way, um, what I'd find was that uh, after about 20 minutes or so, um, my body would start to, to hurt a great deal, mostly in my legs and uh, the after 40 minutes then there was just like there was nothing else happening in the universe there, there was no universe <laughs> there was just these these burning legs um, and uh, different sort of textures of agony <laughs> but basically uh, uh, just sort of gently modulating uh, torment so uh, what uh, was the advice I had? You know, I had very, very good advice in those days, also because in um, uh, there was a number of, of other you know, experienced monks there, and and I was very, very green, so I didn't know a thing. But I got very good advice, and and there was um, it was very helpful to to have that guidance because what people pointed towards was that you know don't just push the pain away or, or try to ignore it and keep staying with the, the breath or whatever. But, you know, once uh, it gets uh, you know, to a certain d- degree of strength, just make the pain your meditation object because it's certainly got your attention already. And that as long as we're sort of pushing it away because it's the unwanted intruder and like, don't bother me, I'm trying to meditate. You know, we can do that for a certain while, but then we are, we're you know, piling even more negativity on it. And so then what we find, uh, and, and this is still the way I, I kind of work and, and, uh, and certainly teach with regards to pain, is that 
as you bring your uh, attention to it, say in your legs or your back or wherever it might be, in your shoulders, your neck, wherever we experience that, then um, what we find is that, that um, there's this whole cluster of, uh, of uh, feelings that are associated there and that uh, by bringing it fully into attention, like embracing it uh, with awareness, then we begin to notice that the degree of uh, fear, of aversion, of, uh, um, say, impatience, restlessness. There's a whole uh, cluster, galaxy, of uh, physical and, uh, and mental qualities that are kind of connected around that feeling, around that, that's that, that place. So that... Um, so first of all, on the, the you know the physical level, you know I, I would notice that the, you know the body was very invariably tensed up against the the painful feeling. That there would be this sort of resi- there would be this tension in the muscles that the, the body sort of resisting the pain and tensing up against it. And just as one does with a, a hatha yoga posture, then you, know, you feel like you know you've you sort of reached your limit, and then when you relax into the pose, and suddenly you find another couple of inches that suddenly appear from somewhere, that you, that by relaxing you find that extra space, that extra stretch. If you just push, you know, there's no more, there's no more room. If you relax, suddenly, ooh, <laughs> there's an, ex- an extra bit there. So in a similar way with uh, dealing with pain, then um, it was by recognizing that tension, then um, developing a quality of, of relaxation, uh, like uh, just Consciously letting the uh, presence of awareness act like the heat lamp, like the just the very fact of holding it in awareness. Then it's what I would find is like, wow, there's a lot of tension, you know, going on there. And then not by the ego saying, relax, 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 stop it. <laughs> I must relax, you know, or uh, from a, a kind of self-based thing, but really. It's a very gentle process. It's like by by holding it in awareness, then that very uh, power of awareness, just like a heat lamp, kind of softens the muscles. Kind of, it's hard to sustain that clinging in the presence of of clear awareness. And another another way I like of phrasing this is like it's as if um, you're in a really um, um, kind of grumpy mood. Or irritated mood, um, or all, you've come over all petulant, and then the, you're having a little pout. You know, the, <laughs> your uh, your lower lip is you know three or four inches <laughs> protruded, and you're all sort of upset about something. And then the Buddha walks into the room. Well, it's really hard to sustain a good pout <laughs> when the Buddha walks in. You can't. You can't really hang on to a, a mood, you know, with, with the, when the master shows up, you feel like a bit of an idiot. So similarly, when when we um, hold that that tension, we, we bring that tension into a, an atmosphere of of awareness. Then it's like we can't. This is what I find: is it's really difficult to sustain the clinging, and there's just that even kind of open awareness. It's like it becomes clear to the heart how uncomfortable that is. And also it's clear that it's something that we're doing. It's not just something that's arrived on its own. It's something that's being sustained. So we use that awareness to help us 
you know, physically relax. So there's a physical relaxation, and there's also um, a relaxation of attitude. Like right at the beginning of the retreat, I talked a bit about the relationship between the body, the posture of the body, and the, and the mental posture, the attitude of the body, the attitude of the mind. And just as we aim to have a, a posture which is both energetic and relaxed, so too the attitude of mind is both, uh, it's both a quality of, of alertness and uh, attentiveness, energy, but also a quality of, of ease, of, of calm. So similarly, with uh, um, working with pain, we see that there's a, you know, the physical and the mental component are very, very closely unified. And so that uh, along with the physical tension that we, that we are creating around that, that pain, kind of resisting it, tensing up against it, and then it takes a bit of effort, but we can, we can relax into it. If we, we also realize there's this whole uh, web of feelings of, of, of irritation, of fear, of worrying what's going to happen, you know, the images of the being rolled into the emergency room. <laughs> you know, life on the Zimmer frame. You know, the... <laughs> having steel pins, you know, having to have your kneecaps replaced and steel rods put into your spine and a whole vertebrae being replaced or kind of welded together. Or, you know, the previous episodes of ER kind of flashing in front of you. And this kind of um, anxiety of um, impatience, the um, negativity, what I, I like to refer to as reasonable hatred. <laughs> it's absolute, a feeling that's absolutely justified for me to hate this feeling. This, you know, it's, of all the things that exist in the universe, this, one should, this is the one thing that shouldn't be here. <laughs> this is the one element that does not belong. You know, God made a mistake with knee pain. You know, it just shouldn't be here. Also, it's the same with mosquitoes. You know. <laughs> the other thing that God shouldn't have created was, uh, was mosquitoes. But in this land of, of, um, of a very uh, highly developed mosquito screens and, and so forth, it's not such a problem here. But in Thailand, there would be no glass in these windows. So our evening sittings would be attended by a large, other, large number of other beings. <laughs> who do not keep the eight precepts and who feed in the evening freely, copiously. And we have to reflect on ourselves as a food source. So to um, then along with the physical relaxation, there's a relaxation of attitude. Just, just feeling and listening to that and uh, I can't bear it, I, can't, I don't want it, this, isn't, uh, this, this, is, this is stupid, you know, I'm going to hurt myself, I'm going to need an operation. Um, when's he going to ring that damn bell? <laughs> you know, if I was running a sitting, I would never torture people like this. And <laughs> I wonder if morphine would really interrupt with my samadhi that, certain, you know, that badly. And why is it illegal anyway? And they ought to provide that, you know, fruit juice, tea, morphine. <laughs> We could each have a little drip or some kind of, like, a little bottle in the zafu, you know, that would sort of plug in so that you'd have utterly painless legs. It'd be a piece of, yeah, it doesn't make the mind that dull, and it'd be, make the things much more easy. You know, the, 
the 10,000 things that the mind creates, just uh, hearing it all, listening to it all going on, this ranting, raving, pleading, complaining, um, yeah, it's very much the, um, the whole schoolyard of inner children <laughs> speaking freely about what they, they feel about pain. Because it's, it's a very primordial, we're dealing with it's a very primordial force. Like, uh, you know, if any of you remember your lessons in, in biology and, and mammalian biology, you'll remember that uh, the nervous systems for our bodies, the most basic um, nerve or sensory nerve is that which uh, senses pain. That's like the, the primordial nerve is the thing that says, ouch. It's just like the way a nerve, end, uh, you know, a pain receptor is just a frayed nerve ending. It's the most basic, simple, primal uh, sense receptor. So that, you know, way, way back, uh, somewhere shortly after the amoeba stage, we developed the ability to say, ouch. You know, pain, get away. It's a very basic protective mechanism. So it's, you know, it's, you know we're really, it's really back at the monocellular level that we develop this, this thing. So the reactions to it, obviously, are pretty primal. Um, you know, very, very basic to us. So that the, the, the reaction is there, and then the thinking mind is like the, the uh, employee, the secretary of the, um, uh, of the uh, instinctual reactions. Or the or, um, present company accepted the, the, if there are any lawyers in the room, the lawyer. For the uh, for the reactive system, it's like you hire the lawyer. The lawyer makes a case. It's like, ouch! I don't want this. I can't bear it. I can't stand it. Okay, hire the lawyer to make you know make that stand up in court. <laughs> How can I get out of this? So, so that the thinking mind will come up with all sorts of um, um, stories and and feelings and complaints and anxieties. So that what we're doing is, is we're softening the attitude along with softening the, 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 the body. So that the, the, uh, the quality of loving-kindness is really what we, we're aiming to bring forth. And, and again, as we mentioned before, loving-kindness doesn't mean to say we're pretending that we like everything. We're not saying, oh, how great, pain, how wonderful. A marvelous opportunity to, to develop, uh, what, uh, patience. <laughs> You know, it's like, oh, you know, you're not going to say, oh, how delicious, this agony, you know, this, this ache in my back or this, you know, gnawing uh, pain in my, in my neck or my shoulders. We're not pretending that we like it, but we're, what we're doing is we're finding that place in our heart that we can see this is part of nature. This belongs. This is part of the natural system. And that um, we uh, are... Um, capable of living in peace with it. The heart can be at peace with that feeling. So as we, we, we soften the attitude, so the, the best phrase, in a way, is, is like not dwelling in aversion to represent metta, loving-kindness. It's like the heart which is, is not contending against it, which says, yeah, this belongs, this is part of it. So then what happens as we, we diminish the... Um, physical tension, and we diminish the uh, mental uh, fretting, you know, fearing and, and uh, 
complaining and so forth, then uh, we radically are re- reducing the, um, the actual causes of the pain. So particularly with the physical side of it, because as the, tension, the level of tension drops, then say that before you, know, you were feeling the pain at sort of level 8 out of 10, then just by lowering the physical tension, it will drop down to like 3 or 4. It's, it's very, very noticeable just by relaxing the body that the actual muscular tension um, is not contributing to the, to the pain. But most of all, what we begin to see is that, the, and this is you know, old news to, to many uh, of us, but again, something that we keep missing, is that you know, the pain is one thing and suffering is another. And that we realize that we can be experiencing physical pain um, sometimes even to quite a strong degree, but whether we make a problem out of it is up to us. It's like there's a, we can see that, oh, there's this, this ache in my leg, and if I cling to it and, and get carried away, then it's a big problem, and, and I'm all upset and, and, and fretting. But if I, if, I help, if I hold it with wisdom, if there's an openness and an ease with it, I just allow the heart to be uh, aware of it, as it is, then there's pain, but there's no suffering. And this is a, so the, the vast amount of the Buddha's teaching revolves around this distinction, that the, the physical pain is, is unavoidable. And even the Buddha had, had uh, physical pain. Like as an old man, he had a lot of back pain. Uh, even in the, the suttas, it describes how uh, he'd have to lean against the pillar in the, in the, in the assembly hall when he gave Dharma talks, because you know, his, his back was, was, uh, was aching. Or he'd say things like, um, he'd turn to Sariputta and say, yeah, my back is hurting me, Sariputta, you give the Dhamma talk tonight. <laughs> I need to lie down. So even the, you know, the master, um, the Buddha himself, you know, experienced physical pain. And in the Mahaparinibbana Sutta, the discourse about the Buddha's last days, he says, um, my body is like an old cart, held together with, with um, pins and straps. Um, and it's impossible for me uh, to experience uh, physical comfort unless I completely absorb my mind into emptiness, like if I dissociate my attention from the, from the physical world altogether. That's the only way I can experience comfort. So he was saying like that as long as he was aware of his body, the, the overriding perception was one of pain, physical pain. So that with that as our as our archetype, so that the Buddha can, can you know, but the Buddha was also incapable of suffering. So that if we use that as our archetype, yes, there can be we, we can experience a physical pain to some degree or other, but it's entirely our choice if we if we suffer because of it. So you know, it's good to to bear in mind that suffering is a, is more of a verb than a noun. It's something that we do. It's not a sort of a, a thing that happens to us or a thing that kind of comes and invades us. It's, a, it's an action that we're taking. I am suffering about something or other. So one of the great blessings um, of working with pain in this way, um, physical pain, is that you know, clarifying that distinction. If you think that Buddhism is going to enable you to live without experiencing any kind of Pain. Wrong religion. <laughs> Check out the uh, Jehovah's Witnesses down in, uh, in Fairfax. Or 
somebody else because you know, this uh, in this neck of the woods you know it's it's, uh, it's not on it's not available <laughs> but certainly we can we can learn how not to suffer that we can do uh, so that one of the great blessings of 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 learning to work with physical pain in this way and it's not because we really do this just because we like to to torture ourselves uh, or that as soon as we feel physical pain people say well, why don't you just kind of move change your posture because what happens is that, that by learning these sort of lessons of working with physical pain so that we, we learn to, to go through it, we learn to meet it and not be swamped by it, we're learning to, to in a way, transcend pain rather than escape it. So that we're learning to, to, that, that you can be with pain but, but not be dominated by it. If as soon as that we feel physical discomfort, we keep just changing our posture or add another cushion or you know, <laughs> go find some morphine, you know, or at least a cup of tea, you know, then, then what happens is that um, we're not learning a very, very important lesson. And the, the, what you find is that the, as you begin to train yourself on the physical level, like the, the dealing with the physical body and physical discomfort in this way, it's a it's a very monosyllabic language, you know, like "ow," "hurt," "don't want." <laughs> it's pretty simple kind of dialogue that we have with the body in this respect. But what we learn um, then translates from that the monosyllabic language of the body to the much more complex language of our emotional nature and our psychological pain, because far more. Uh, impactful on our lives is the the constant attempt to escape from psychological pain, from emotional and, and mental pain, and um, you know trying to find uh, uh, ways to not feel, say, rejected by others, or, or not feeling afraid, or not feeling uh, oppressed, or not feeling depressed, or not feeling um, you know any of the the thousand and one painful emotional states that we can experience. We're, we're constantly trying to find a place where I don't feel that, where I'm not oppressed by that, where my interaction with others don't create those painful effects, where I'm not rejected, where I'm always loved, where uh, I am, let's say, uh, you know, I get the, thing, the, the, the things that I want, or, or, or that nothing makes me feel jealous or unsettled or threatened, vulnerable, hurt. You know, we could sit and just make a, a list of <laughs> of, uh, of qualities. And we're all very, very vividly aware of those. So that what we find with, with say, learning this lesson through physical pain is that then it translates directly into dealing with emotional pain. We find that there can be a feeling of grief, just like these, uh, you know, the very uh, beautiful evening we had last night and this, this theme we've had of, uh, uh, through this retreat uh, of death and, and bereavement and uh, the kind of apprehending and meeting acknowledgement of that and working with that and through that. We find that we can experience something like grief uh, and fully uh, aware of it and open to it, but yet not suffering because of it. Even to the point where you can have tears you know, pouring down your face the heart, deeply experiencing psychological pain, but yet absolutely peaceful at the same time. This is, a, this is miraculous, uh, but it's, it's the way it is. 
So with every every kind of painful emotional state, with fear, with jealousy, with with uh, anger, with lust, with all, the whole uh, menagerie uh, of different states, we find that we can experience uh, we can experience them uh, in a in a in, with a, a quality of of a, of a clear awareness without confusion. So that those states are, are present, they're alive in our consciousness, but the heart is unconfused by them, you know, the heart knows what it is. It's not repressing it, it's not chasing after it, it's not believing in it, it's not rejecting it. It just knows, oh, this is a fear reaction, this is a jealousy reaction, this is a lust reaction, you know, this is an anger reaction, it feels like this. You know, it, it's, it's directed towards such and such a person, or it's... You know, uh, upset with such and such an event, it feels like this, and so we uh, we're not trying to uh, escape it just by getting away from that situation. We're not um, elaborating it, amplifying it by believing in all the stories or, or, or um, getting uh, cranked up about it. Neither suppression nor re- uh, nor um, indulgence, as it's the full apprehension of it knowing it for what it is. We know it's a painful state. We know it's a state of, of, of imbalance. But we can, we can take it in. We can know it. We can digest it and, and let go of it. And so that this is a pretty obviously an amazingly useful lesson for us to learn as human beings. Because this is really where most of our difficulties are experienced in life is uh, in our in painful emotional states and our inability to handle them skillfully. I mean, certainly I speak from experience. <laughs> you know, very much that uh, it's through believing in, being uh, being obsessed by, uh, following after different emotions, uh, believe, you know, chasing them, suppressing them, uh, ang- worrying about them, obsessing about them. That we, we become so you know, entangled and caught up, just stories within stories within stories, and by learning um, how to practice with them in this way, there's a, a remarkable um, unconfusedness. That there, there's a it can be a full scale you know, emotional uh, surge, and, and no confusion whatsoever. And that uh, there's a um, there's a blessedness that comes into our life through that, and we find that that um, you know, when the we experience you know emotions or motivations that are, are positive or benevolent. And those are the things that we give, we give power, we give energy to. And those that are, are destructive or, or harmful to ourselves or to others, they're the ones that we, we find you know, wisdom guides us to, to let go of, to abandon. So this is really what we are... Uh, when we talk about... Um, say we are talking about dependent origination the other day, talking about not being reborn, this is what we mean. It's like not being born into uh, a feeling of fear, not being born into the, you know, the pain in your knee, not being born into 
that unrequited love or not being born into that unfinished project, not being you know, born into the, uh, that long-standing uh, squabble or that uh, great hope or that big responsibility. When, uh, when, we, when we think of you know, uh, different people who have strong emotional presence in our life, things, people that we've loved, people that we've clashed with, um, things that uh, stir us up, just you know, bearing in mind how, how easily you just sort of think of that name, you know, <laughs> him. And then off it goes, the whole, you know, the, the whole, not only the whole story, the whole series, complete with repeats. <laughs> you, know, you know the script so well, you can recite you know, whole large portions of it. Suddenly, boom, it's all there. It's all alive. It's all real. We're born. We're born into that. So when we talk about not being born again, this is really what it means. So you know, the, the, the Buddha's teaching you know, functions on, on many, many different levels, both on uh, the levels, say, in this respect, across lifetimes, but more, more particularly, more importantly, it's across you know, moment-to-moment rebirth. And when we talk about, say, the escaping from birth and death, it's the, you know, we can see for ourselves, we can, we can taste for ourselves the beauty of, of what uh, we experience when we're not entangled in that way, when we're not born into things. Like the... Um, the words at the end of the discourse on loving kindness. I like to, to uh, uh, often bring this to people's attention. You know, we have this whole long, well, not terribly long, but you know, the ninety-five percent of the the Buddha's teaching on loving kindness is all these kind of very sweet, uh, noble, um, emotional qualities arousing towards other beings. And it's, it's to do with un- my kind of unconditional love for, for you and for, for other beings. You know, even as a mother protects with her life her child, her only child, so with a boundless heart should one cherish all living beings. So there's this very powerful and beautiful expression of, of uh, love and kindness, benevolence towards others. And then the last four lines of the, of the, the sutta have a very different tone. Uh, to to the, the the first large part, where it says, uh, by not holding to fixed views, the pure-hearted one, having clarity of vision, being freed from all sense desires, is not born again into this world. So oftentimes people hear that, and you know the um, I think all of us have a um, um, for most people, there's a, uh, an attraction towards the, the altruism uh, that's, that's embodied, uh, say, in Mahayana Buddhism, in the, the Bodhisattva ideal. The idea of someone who is so unselfish that they, they volunteer, voluntarily are born over and over again to come back and to help other living beings. And you think, oh, how wonderful, you know, this, someone would, you know, would, would come back to help out little me, you know, over and over again. How great, that's amazing, how wonderful, how kind. You know, there's actually beings out there, you know, in here, <laughs> who voluntarily come back, maybe some even in this room, 
who voluntarily have come back to help out little me struggle through my life and help me not make so many stupid mistakes. Isn't that wonderful? So, you know, it's an attractive, uh, beautiful um, image. And, um, and numerous times when, when we've recited these verses amongst sort of mixed Buddhist crowds, <laughs> not just the hardcore Theravadans, but uh, the general sort of California mixture of, of uh, a bit of Maha, a bit of Vajra, a few Theravadans, a few non-committals. You know. <laughs> Plus, of course, the, you know, the, the extra um, uh, Hindu mix with <laughs> the little pagan twist. <laughs> like one of those uh, soya chai cocktails in the <laughs> you get in the coffee bars. So, uh, yeah, so most of us have you know, affiliations across different traditions and, and feelings of, of attraction and worth of different expressions. So sometimes people wonder about this, you know, after this great, beautiful, uplifting expression of loving kindness for all beings, then it's the pure-hearted one having clarity of vision, being freed from all sense desires, is not born again. It's like, no. Well, that's not very nice. (laughs) (laughs) You know, it's like, I love all beings, I love you all unconditionally, completely, totally, and I'm out of (laughs) here. So long, guys. It's been real. <laughs> Have a good time. Have a nice life. I'm off. You know. So, um, yeah, this can be a little bit perplexing or confusing. And um, you know, it's it's a it's a principle that um, you know, I've been reflecting on for for for, for years myself. Um, and it's 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 interesting because, say, in some collections of Mahayana teachings, uh, discourses that you you read or hear, or just in in sutras and texts, there's um, even though they 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 explicitly um, describe the bodhisattva vows, and people are, uh, are encouraged to take the the bodhisattva vows to. Um, uh, which are four in number, living beings and numberless, I vow to save them all. Uh, afflictions are limitless, I vow to cut them all off. Uh, the uh, the Dharma doors are, are infinite, I vow to enter them all. And the Buddha way is supreme, I vow to accomplish it. Um, and the people are uh, strongly encouraged. Many centers and, and uh, temples, these are taken sort of on, a, on a regular basis, even a daily basis. These are reiterated. But at the same time, you have the teachings which, uh, uh, with equal vigor, encourage people to cut off birth and death, to, to um, escape from the wheel of birth and death, to, to not be um, caught in, in uh, the cycles of, of birth and death. And just in this, this very hall, uh, a year or so ago, I was um, uh, co-leading a retreat with Sokni Rinpoche, uh, Tibetan Lama, and uh, we found, and I found there was this exact kind of um, mixture going on that there was the, both the you know the Bodhisattva va- uh, vows being reiterated, and also this uh, kind of daily recollection of um, the resolution to to break free from the the cycles of birth and death. So um, there's a 
there's a, a paradox there. And, uh, and so similarly, when we, we talk about this in, in, um, in Theravada, it's, it's pretty blunt. You know, it's like we just talk about you know, ending birth and death. And, and the whole Bodhisattva ideal is not really spoken of, even though, you know, obviously the Buddha, uh, as the Bodhisattva, kind of gave a great example, and one tends to you know, follow one's teachers as an example, uh, that, um, that he made that resolution and was reborn over and over. So that one way that, that say, uh, uh, one can reflect on it, and that one of the things that I find useful is that you know, if we take the, the uh, if we look at, the, say, in Mahayana Buddhist tradition, how they, they impart the, these teachings about being born for the sake of others, they're always, um, well, not always, but the, the, the complete picture is that the teachings on, on these vows, the Bodhisattva vows, are given alongside teachings on emptiness. Like this summer we were down uh, listening to the Dalai Lama's teachings in, in um, Los Angeles, and after well, four or five days of teachings, uh, and a lot of words, you think I talk a lot, yeah. <laughs> a lot of words, he finally, the final, final, final uh, uh, ending of it, he said, okay, well, if you really want to just, everything that's been said in the last five days, you can, you can boil it all down to two things, altruism and emptiness. That's it. That's the whole story. It's like the and in altruism meaning like the you know like the bodhisattva resolve for all beings. So these two are, are traditionally uh, and I think most effectively sort of imparted side by side. And uh, and again you have um, the image of Avalokiteshvara, the um, the bodhisattva of compassion, the embodiment of compassion, as one one side of it. And then Prajna Paramita, the um, perfection of wisdom. Uh, embodying the the other side of it, that you have these two emptiness, the wisdom that sees emptiness on one side, and then the compassion of of um, caring for all beings on the other. So that um, the the way that they that, you know that they balance each other out. So that if we if we take the bodhisattva vows on a literal level, like living beings are numberless, I vow to save them. Well, you don't really have to be much of a mathematician to figure out that's a lot of work. <laughs> it's going to be a long job, and that if there's more, and also if there's more than one bodhisattva around, you know the math doesn't work. You know, because who's going to be the last one through the gate? You know, and they have these these jokes you see sometimes in Buddhist magazines where, like, you know, two bodhisattvas at the gate to nibbana say, "No, after you! No, 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 after you!" No, no, please, please, you first, after you, after you. No, no, I insist, please, please, you must go. <laughs> so it's kind of problematic on the mathematical front, you know. So, so um, that the, uh, the principle of, uh, of understanding that is like, if we take it uh, in a literal sense, like I am here and there are living beings out there and it's my job, to make to help all other living beings to be enlightened, um, that there are, we are sort of distinct, permanent, individual entities. Then that sort of it's only half. That's really 
misunderstanding that teaching is only half of the story. Similarly, if we take hold of the emptiness teachings that say there are no beings, no one was ever born, no one ever dies, nothing ever happened. Well, it's like when someone asked Dujam Rinpoche, um, if, if, if everything was perfect from the very beginning and it all, ex- and it all exists within the, the scope of, of the Mahati, the great perfection, then how did this whole thing begin in the first place? And he leant forward and said, did it? <laughs> so the emptiness teachings... You know, if we if we cling to the emptiness teaching, saying there's nobody here, there's nobody there, there's nobody, be, there's, there's there's nothing to do, there's nobody to be saved, no one to save them. Um, then, if we cling to that, then again, that's only uh, we miss part of the teaching. And that, as I was saying before, it's a question of, of balancing these two. And in some of the the, the teachings, like in the Vajra Sutra, uh, it's, it's it describes this this kind of paradox very skillfully because it says. Um, that uh, we uh, pursuing the vow to save all living beings. If you believe there are living beings, then you can't save any living beings. To realize there are no beings is to save all beings. This is <laughs> that's how you save all beings: is to realize there are no beings. So that there's a a kind of interplay of are these two principles that seem to be, um, say, contradicting each other. And that uh, a story I often like to tell was it took place at a, a uh, Buddhist conference in, in Europe where a very perplexed German student, very sincere student of Tibetan Buddhism, um, spoke to him after a succession of teachings about um, the Bodhisattva Tara, um, the, the student uh, came to the Rinpoche and, uh, in this, with furrowed brow and said, uh, Rinpoche, Rinpoche, yeah, I, have the, I have one question that you know, I, yeah, I, I really want to commit myself to the practice, yeah, but I have this doubt. <laughs> you see, I don't know whether Tara, she really exists or not. So, once and for all. Rinpoche, bitteschön. Tara, does she exist or does she not? Please, Rinpoche, give me the straight answer. And so the, the Lama kind of paused and thought for a minute and then said, she knows that she's not real. <laughs> Which I think is the most brilliant response in the uh, entire Dharma realm. Because it kind of captures the whole thing. So, the, this in a way, it represents the middle way. Uh, and that, um, you know, that these balance of both the the, the, the quality of emptiness and the quality of, of uh, wholeness. Um, it's like sustaining these two, these two uh, visions. Um, and then as soon as we cling to one, if we cling to emptiness, then we, it kind of drifts into nihilism. If we cling to 
to um, the um, the altruism, then it drifts into eternalism. We kind of we get we wander off into the two extremes. And the middle way is is like you know, knowing she, <laughs> that she doesn't exist. You know, that she knows she doesn't exist. And uh, another way I like to uh, to describe this is like that the uh, the Buddha. Um, in the very word that he used to refer to himself, embodied this same kind of paradox, which was the, the word tathagata, like you, in the chanting that we do. You have seen that. And uh, I, I like to uh, bring this to people's attention because it's something I mention often because I find it's a really useful way of contemplating it. And the Buddha um, coined this word himself. So the word tata means thus or such. And the word uh, gata means to go. Like buddhang saranang gachami, I go to the Buddha for refuge. Gachami, I go. So gata means um, gone. And then if you put an A at the beginning of the word, that means negative. So agata means to come. And so uh, for centuries, millennia, the argument has been up in the air about whether the Buddha meant tathagata or tathagata thus gone or thus come is he the thus come one or the thus gone one is he completely gone completely transcendent or is he completely here imminent you know is which one which is the real one what did he really 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 mean and of course you know people have opinionated and formed camps and argue with each other endlessly but um, my own pet theory is that he, he, and he liked, and the Buddha was fond of word plays and, and uh, ironies and such like, that he, for such a powerful thing as the word that he chose to refer to himself, then he deliberately chose a, a, an ambiguous term that is supposed to mean both, both uh, mirroring the qualities of, uh, of emptiness, of letting go, of not being born, uh, and the, the qualities of, of wholeness, of the, of the bodhisattva uh, ideal, say that, that, that qualities of, of, um, of, uh, say, of wholeness, of immanence. So when we talk about not being born again, uh, in a way, uh, one way of interpreting it means like not being born in ignorance, not being... Um, Say, you know, like I was saying, we can experience a mood, we can experience the, the perceptions of the body moving we can, uh, without me going anywhere. That the, the perceptions of the body moving, I hear the sound of my voice, my, I can, there's the perceptions of my hands moving through space, but that which is knowing my hands moving, that which is not moving, that which is hearing the sound of, uh, of the voice is, is silent. So that they're given sufficient mindfulness, then we can witness the, the activity and motion and flow of mood and response uh, to, to life without any confusion. So we can, we, can, you know, we can pick something up and we can use it. We put it down without confusion, without clinging. So similarly, uh, if there's a sufficient mindfulness, then we, 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 as we pick up a, you know, a bell striker and, and ring a bell, 
then if a being is wise enough and has got their act together skillfully enough, then why not pick up a body and run a human life? <laughs> and then through the agency of that life, then um, be a, a catalyst for the, uh, for the welfare and, and, and spiritual development and benefit of others. The pick up a body, do a life, drop a body. <laughs> Just pick up the, the striker, run a life, put it down again, have a funeral. Just like that. So if, if, you know, based on the fact that one has really got one's act together. But that, I think this is, a, in a way, a skillful way of understanding it, so that, you know, that I don't want to get too categorical about, you know, the nature of the Arahant and the Bodhisattva, and the Arahant and the Bodhisattva should be friends. <laughs> and, uh, you know, I know as centuries of arguments have taken place around this, but just in a way of picking it up skillfully and, in, and how it can inform our own practice um, so that we're, we see how these things work together, like really getting a sense of what being born into something means and what happens when we're not born. That actually rather than that being like an annihilation, a wipeout, what it means is that we can live with incredible grace and... Uh, and uh, beauty, with incredible uh, ease, and of, of great service. You know, we, we are, our life is a blessing to those around us. The, um, you know, it's, the, I hesitate to sort of go into this subject because it's, you know, it kind of, it gets a bit ephemeral and a bit theoretical and heady, um, but it is, you know, the reason why I bring it up is because it is very central, in a way, as we're trying to, to delve into the very roots of our life, you know, what it is to be alive, what it is to be a living being, what it is to experience, and, you know, the kind of practice we've been doing and moving towards in this, this retreat. You know, these are, these are puzzles that we are being confronted with. You know, what am I? What is a living being? What are we? And that um, you know, the, the, the fact is that the, the, the deeper in we go, it's like the bigger we get and the less definition. You know, we start out, you know, well, when I came to this retreat, <laughs> I was somebody. <laughs> like one, one person came into the retreat, into the interview, and she said, you know, I feel like I, you know, I'm the... The, the artist formerly known as Prince, you know, I'm the, <laughs> I'm the, you know, the retreatant formerly known as so-and-so, you know, because it's, you know, that which I thought I was is, is like, it doesn't contain the actuality. There's something sort of that's bigger than that. So these are, are helpful, I find, helpful principles to really understand and that um, rather than feeling we've got to have some kind of conceptual form or package that we define what I am in. The, the whole point of the practice is that, that you know, and what the Buddha's, is, particularly in the Theravada teachings, the Buddha very skillfully pointed to is that what we are cannot be defined in words. It's intrinsically undefinable. So that's why you know, the, the Buddha never said, you know, your true self is such and such. You know, he just said, 
The body is not self, feelings are not self, perceptions are not self, mental formations are not self, consciousness is not self. So it's like taking away all, all of the um, false identifications with what we're not. Then you say, okay, so what am I? <laughs> and we want a nice phrase or a term, like you are the absolute ultimate emptiness. You know? <laughs> Limitless, timeless, space point zero. You are the heart of the universe. You know, we'd like a nice little definition like that. Um, But the the Buddha is extraordinarily silent on that matter. And and in in the beginning, my first acquaintance with these teachings, I felt very frustrated by that. (laughs) I thought, well, maybe it was written down somewhere. You know, maybe he kind of imparted the secret teaching to the little, you know, the, the close disciples. He must have told Rahula. I mean, he was his own son, you know. Or at least Sariputta, one of those guys, must have got it. Maybe Yashodara, you know, his, his former wife. Maybe he told her. But the more you know, the time goes by, the more I know. It's, it's not a matter of the, the secret being passed on to the few. But instead, the incredible genius and kindness of the Buddha to say, no, it's not definable. Don't, you know, as soon as you try to define it, you've, you've lost it. So, yena yena hi manyanti tatatanghoti anyatati. Whatever we conceive it to be, the truth is always uh, uh, the truth is always other than that. So there's this this principle called the unapprehendability of the Tathagata, where the Buddha met with. There's a couple of, of descriptions of this in the suttas where. Um, the Buddha is meeting with, with, with one of the, the monks and um, he's asking these, these questions. And the, uh, you know, the, the monk has been asked about what happens to an enlightened being after death. And uh, the Buddha asked him, well, do you think, you know, right here, you're sitting face to face with the Tathagata, do you think that the Tathagata is the five khandhas? You say, no, that's... That's not it. Do you think the Tathagata has the five khandhas? No, that's not it. Do you think the Tathagata doesn't have the five khandhas? That's not it. Do you think the Tathagata is in the five khandhas? No, that's not it. Do you think the Tathagata is separate from the five khandhas? No, that's not it either. And the Buddha said, well, even so, here you are sitting, even though the Tathagata is face to face with you, and with, this, with the, the physical form and perceptions and thoughts and so forth, even here now, the Tathagata is unapprehendable by you. You cannot define what that is, the Tathagata, the thus come, thus gone. That how much more so, after the death of the body, is that unapprehendable, is that undefinable, ungraspable? So the, the teaching is pointing us to not trying to define it, like I was describing that, exp- that the practice of, of asking who am I or what am I, that there's no right verbal answer. The silence of the awake mind is the answer. And even if you think, ah, oh, that's it, <laughs> that's the answer. I am the silence of the awakened mind. That's what I am. <laughs> Wrong. <laughs> We just grabbed it again. We just took a thing and grabbed it. 
It's like that. Uh, it's that the actual the answer is in the being. It's not in the the naming of it. And so the practice that we're pursuing and cultivating here is really that direct realization of that quality. Not ideas about it, not names for it, not thoughts about it, not opinions. Just, but that actual, in this moment, that direct realization. So just uh, to finish with um, another quotation that I'm very, very fond of. Um, when uh, the Buddha was being pressed by another person, uh, this is in the Sutta Nipata, this uh, young um, group of Brahmin students came to visit him, and this one called Upasiva had these questions about the nature of an enlightened being after death. And they said, one who has reached the end, after the death of the body, uh, do, they, uh, are they, uh, do they no longer exist? Or are they, are they made immortal, perfectly free? And the Buddha says, uh, one who has reached the end has no criterion by which they can be measured. You cannot say they do not exist. But when all modes of being, all phenomena have been removed, then all means of description have gone too. One who has reached the end has no criterion by which they can be measured. Now this is it's like this is like um, most wonderful music to to my heart. It's just so simple, so brilliant that our practice is is uh, to awaken to that which is unmeasurable, which is the uh, the subtle, which is right here the very fabric, the very heart of our own being, our own nature, uh, and yet which escapes us moment by moment, day by day, because of our preoccupations with this and that and here and there and right and wrong and you and me and the list. (laughs) My list of things to do. But yet, you know, this this very simple and direct practice can kind of lead us to that. And uh, when when we we do that, when we pursue that, when we follow that, then we find this... uh, that right here, the very heart of our own life, has been this uh, astonishing beauty, richness. And the thinking mind is frustrated. It can't pin it down. We can't describe it, but we can be it. And that uh, that's, that's all we need to do. That's the, the, the point of it. It's not to be able to describe it or explain it, but to, to simply be that, to be that uh, Tathagata. Completely here. Completely gone. Anyone? <clears throat>
So, why don't we finish with the uh, discourse on loving kindness? This is what should be done by one who is skilled in goodness and who knows the path of peace. Let them be able and upright, straightforward and gentle in speech, humble and not conceited, Contended and easily satisfied, unburdened with duties, and frugal in their ways, peaceful and calm and wise and skillful, not proud and demanding in nature. Let them not do the slightest thing, that the wise would later reprove, wishing in gladness and in safety, may all beings be at ease. Whatever living beings there may be, whether they are weak or strong, omitting none, the great or the mighty, medium, short or small, the seen and the unseen, those living near and far away, those born and to be born, may all beings be at ease. Let none deceive another, or despise any being in any state. Let none through anger or ill will wish harm upon another, even as a mother protects with her life her child, her only child. So with a boundless heart should one cherish all living beings, radiating kindness over the entire world, spreading upwards to the skies and downwards to the depths, outwards and unbounded, freed from hatred and ill will. Whether standing or walking, seated or lying down, free from drowsiness, one should sustain this recollection. This is said to be the sublime abiding. By not holding to fixed views, the pure-hearted one, having clarity of vision, being freed from all sense desires, 
is not born again into this disciples who have practiced well, I bow to the Sangha. 